Good morning. If I haven't met you yet, I'm the guy they just voted to dismiss. I'm Dave Dorst. I appreciate uh, everyone walking through this process with us. Uh, it's been two years almost since I stood up here and told you guys that uh, this is where I felt the Lord was leading me. Um, but Catherine Colbert doesn't want me to talk about it anymore, so we'll downplay it a little bit. If you have a sermon outline, part of your bulletin, it'll help you not have to turn so quickly in your Bibles. We're in Mark chapter 6. I wonder what you do when someone comes to you to give you constructive criticism or perhaps a rebuke, uh, some calling you out on something that you've done. We've all done or said something stupid. We've all made poor judgment calls. We've all stepped out of line and sinned against other people and often uh, the Lord will put people in our lives who will point that out to us and offer some correction, confrontation. And so you have a few options for how to respond in that situation. Number one, you can just ignore them. Sometimes this works online. is probably maybe even a wise course, uh, but not always the best idea when you have to live with this person or work with them or worship with them. It's sometimes hard to do. Um, you're going to probably have to respond and address things some way. So the number two way you could do this is just to flat out deny, deny, deny. Don't concede an inch. Nope. I'm not listening and you don't have it right. Uh, the third way would be dis to discredit this person and what they're saying, um, saying that they don't really understand the situation or accusing them of having some dark ulterior motive. Uh, fourth would be to meet with them and to attempt to understand what they're trying to say and to look for the truth in it, to accept that truth, and to humbly uh, decide to work towards change. Now, when I was a new young director of youth ministry in Florida, I probably responded in every single one of those ways uh, when people would come to me and offer me suggestions, corrections. Uh, sometimes I owned it and apologized and, and pledged to do better, like when one of the kids wrote me a letter that said, your sarcasm is a little uh, hurtful. So I remember being very... Uh, sorry about that. Other times I got defensive, like when I took the kids out to an event that kept them out pretty late on a school night, and the youth ministry committee really let me have it. None of you were out there late helping me, so, yeah. So, I, I began to recognize that it is a mark of maturity to learn how to handle uh, people's criticism well. There is one more thing you can do in those situations is that is to attack the person. This is usually a verbal attack, but if you're powerful enough or angry or threatened enough, maybe it's a physical attack. If you have the power of the state behind you, you can really hurt them and go after their life, maybe throw them in prison. 
this is what's happened to Wong Yi. I think Frank talked about this in his last sermon. Uh, he's the pastor of Early Rain Covenant Church, which is a reformed church in Chengdu, China. He uh, has spoken out against the oppression of Christians in his country. He was a human rights lawyer before he became a pastor. He was arrested over a year ago, December of 2018, along with his wife and over 100 members of his church. Two months before he was arrested, he wrote a document for, because he sensed that this might happen. It was called, My Declaration of Faithful Disobedience. Here is some of the English translation of this letter. I am filled with anger and disgust at the persecution of the church by this communist regime at the wickedness of their depriving people of the freedoms of religion and of conscience. Persecution against the Lord's church and against all Chinese people who believe in Jesus Christ is the most wicked and the most horrendous evil of Chinese society. I believe that this communist regime's persecution against the church is a greatly wicked, unlawful action. As a pastor of a Christian church, I must denounce this wickedness openly and severely. A year later, this past December 30th, just three weeks ago, Pastor Yi was sentenced to nine years in prison for inciting subversion of state power and illegal business operations. That is the longest sentence given to a house church pastor there in a decade. But this is certainly not a new tactic by the state in dealing with followers of Jesus who speak out against corruption, abuse, and scandal. Our passage today is the account of John the Baptist's treatment at the hands of the local authorities when he spoke out against them. So turn with me to Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. 
And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty, eternal, merciful God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. Open and illuminate our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand your word and that our lives may be conformed to what we have rightly understood through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, when you hear the name Herod, your mind may go to the Herod in the Christmas story who ordered the deaths of all the baby boys under the age of two in order to kill the Christ child. Or you may think of the Herod at the end of the Gospels uh, who received Jesus from Pontius Pilate. Pilate kind of sends him there as a stall tactic and Uh, in order to figure out what to do with Jesus. Well, the Herod in the Christmas story was Herod the Great. And the Herod here is that same one that is going to receive Jesus when he's on trial. His name is Herod Antipas, one of the sons of Herod the Great. He's actually not a king, even though Mark calls him that. I don't know if Mark was just trying to honor him or possibly discredit him or poke fun at him. I'm not sure. Uh, Herod asked for the title of king, but was denied and actually exiled eventually. Um, He was a tetrarch, is more of the official title, which means a ruler over a fourth part. And he was just over Galilee and Perea. And his brothers or half-brothers ruled the other areas of what Herod the Great had ruled. This story can be framed or broken down in the ways that Herod acted based on how he understood things. And so as we look at the beginning of the story, the first three verses show Herod's view of Jesus. Let's look at what, how Herod saw Jesus. King Herod heard of it, and we're going to assume that this means when Jesus sent his disciples out and suddenly Uh, It wasn't just Jesus healing and casting out demons and preaching repentance. It was his disciples as well. And so things were spreading. And so uh, that was certainly the last scripture that we read and that you see in Mark. So King Herod heard of this, of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah. And the other said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So Jesus' miraculous works are becoming well-known. The news even making it to every section of government. And as as with everyone who hears or meets Jesus, Herod is trying to figure out exactly who this guy is. Uh, Jesus had raised Jairus' daughter. We read that account. Uh, So it's not uh, hard to see that there might have been talk going around about people rising from the dead. Herod had not met Jesus. Sure, his dad had tried to kill him 30 years earlier, but he had tried to kill a lot of people. Herod's 
Guilt is what speaks here. His guilt over uh, killing John the Baptist makes him fearful that perhaps John is back, maybe out for revenge. I think it's ironic, though, as if you were here last week or if you just back up and mark a little bit and compare how Herod is seeing these things. He, he actually has a knee-jerk reaction that Jesus is a prophet of some kind. He's got to be some spiritual holy man when we contrast that with Jesus' family and his hometown who gave him no honor. Didn't really have an answer for how he could do all these things or say all these things, but he certainly wasn't anything sent from God. He's just the local boy. Um, It's also interesting that Herod is not the only one a little confused about who Jesus is. He's got... Uh, a prisoner in his dungeon, chained up, who is actually, uh, he's supposed to be an expert on this kind of thing. And he's experiencing his own doubts. If you look at Luke chapter 7, it's recorded the disciples of John, this is verse 18, skip around a little bit, but through 23, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And this is while John was in prison. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And he, Jesus, answered them. This is verse 22. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I've always thought that John must have been disoriented from being in prison so long, dehydrated, needed food. I don't know what happened. Somehow maybe fed bad information um, about what was happening with Jesus. Because I can't imagine having grown up as his cousin and had a uh, mission to announce Jesus of these doubts. On the other hand, if John could doubt gives us a little room for questions and doubts. That's a little reassuring. So Herod's not so clear on Jesus' identity, but he had a much better understanding of who John was. So John's, uh, Herod's view of John the Baptist in verses 17 through 20. Let's read that again. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Now before we talk about uh, Herod's marriage and situation, uh, I want to refer back, if you were listening closely and watching that video, it referred to Mother Teresa and quoted her uh, a few lines about the sanctity of life. And if you don't know the context of those statements, maybe she said them a couple times in her life, but there was a very specific incident in Mother Teresa's life in 1994. She was invited to speak in America, even though she was in Calcutta, India, ministering to lepers and homeless children, the poorest of the poor. And I think for that work, she got invited to uh, speak at the National Prayer Breakfast by the Clinton administration. And as you may know, Bill Clinton was uh, 
supported pro-abortion views and policies. And so Mother Teresa's marks included the remarks that morning included these lines. The greatest destroyer of peace today is abortion because it is a war against the child, a direct killing of the innocent child, murder by the mother herself. And if we accept that a mother can kill even her own child, how can we tell other people not to kill one another? How do we persuade a woman not to have an abortion? As always, we must persuade her with love, and we remind ourselves that love means to be willing to give until it hurts. Jesus gave even his life to love us. So the mother who is thinking of abortion should be helped to love, that is, to give until it hurts her plans or her free time to respect the life of her child. The father of that child, whoever he is, must also give until it hurts. Any country that accepts abortion is not teaching its people to love, but to use any violence to get what they want. This is why the greatest destroyer of love and peace is abortion. So like John the Baptist, two centuries before, Mother Teresa had no trouble speaking truth to power. Now the background of John's rebuke is that Herod fell in love with and married his half-brother Philip's wife, Herodias. And then he divorced his first wife. His first wife happened to be the daughter of King Aretas, which started a war that Herod lost later. Uh, But in addition to being Herod's brother's wife, Herodias was also the daughter of another one of Herod's. Uh, Herod the Great had 10 sons, 10 children. Um, So that made her a niece as well. So this was both adultery and, to some degree, uh, incest. So this is a pretty messed up romantic entanglement that results in some harsh consequences for anyone involved. John steps in with the prophetic rebuke, telling the couple that they are violating God's law. They would have been wise to listen to John's rebuke of their marriage and repented and made it right. But as with people who pursue their fleshly desires and hate to be called out often do, they lashed out and they had John arrested. And and like Queen Jezebel in 1 Kings or Lady Macbeth in the Shakespeare play, Herodias seems to be the stronger-willed, more bloodthirsty half of her marriage, right? It doesn't seem like Herod would have thrown John in prison if it wasn't for Herodias' anger. Verse 17 says, he threw John in prison for the sake of Herodias. And later it says that Herod was keeping him safe. This probably created tension in their marriage as she lobbied to have John killed, but Herod just can't do it. Can't bring himself to that. There's a strange fascination that Herod has with John. He would go visit him and listen to him gladly, the text says. Now, John has always drawn crowds, right? The crazy prophet in the wilderness that everybody was just curious to go hear. And so Herod has that fascination as well. He's he's perplexed. He He doesn't understand John. He doesn't agree with him, but he respects him and he fears him. Think about how opposite they are. John is is righteous and honest to a fault. 
And Herod is a lecherous, unrepentant adulterer. John has lived an ascetic life out in the wilderness. Herod has lived in luxury and throws himself these grand parties. So Herod doesn't know exactly what he's going to do with John. He knows he can't let him go, but he also can't bring himself to order him killed. But as often happens in life, if we have not made up our minds and stand strong on conviction, circumstances will force our hand and make us choose. So the climax of the story shows that Herod caves in because of the view of his guests. So in verses 21 through 29, Herod's view of his guests. An opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask for me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now we learn from the historian Josephus that Herodias' daughter's name is Salome. And she is Herodias' daughter from her first marriage which makes her both Herod's stepdaughter and great-niece. You can imagine uh, what her dancing that pleased Herod and his guests looked like. Actually, stop imagining that. But knowing how twisted their relationships were, right? It's not unreasonable to think that Herod was turned on by this dance. It says... I mean, the the Bible's a little mature in how it handles it, but but he's probably drunk. He's swelled up with pride and lust, and so he just loudly promises that he will give her anything she wishes, up to half the kingdom. Now, that phrase, half of my kingdom, if you remember, Esther gets that same offer from her king in the book of Esther. Uh, It's not meant to be taken literally. I don't think Rome would have allowed him to just hand over half of what he ruled um, it was simply a way of saying, I will reward you generously. And Herod doesn't see it coming, right? Salome finds her mother for advice, her mother who's probably been pulling all the strings, planning this somehow. And Herodias is, uh, says, John the Baptist said, this is her chance. And Salome runs in and says very quickly, right, adds the gruesome detail that I need John the Baptist's head on a platter. Now, there's a lot to chew on here about John's contrasting, again, John and Herod, and John's courage to speak the truth no matter what the consequences versus Herod's cowardice to be pressured into doing something morally evil that he really didn't want to do. 
The fear of man's opinion and the need to respect make us say and do things we wouldn't normally do. From the elementary school kid who gets dared by his peers to do something all the way up to the most powerful men in society, we're negatively influenced by our peers' opinions. Herod didn't have to give in to this request, right? But the text says he did not want to break his oath. Not that he's this great oath keeper. He should have cast his stepdaughter out of the room and told her mother that he would not participate in killing a righteous prophet. But, but there are VIPs here, right? There are nobles, important men of the town who have witnessed this whole thing. And Herod can't look weak or stingy doesn't really say how the nobles reacted him. They may have been cringing and hoping that he wouldn't honor the request. Or they may have been toasting and saying, yeah, John's head. We don't know. But in Herod's head, he had to do it. How ironic that a man who has thrown away, thrown aside his marriage vows, feels like he has to keep this spontaneous, manipulated oath. Now, I asked last week uh, the, the high school Sunday school class what other applications we could take from this story. So they gave me, some, they gave me maybe some good ideas. Uh, don't make drunk promises. Don't go to birthday parties for men who unjustly imprison people. Uh, if your niece is dancing inappropriate, look away. Perf. Don't marry anyone ever. That was a suggestion. And never listen to your mother. Tristan, we will not rat you out for, for saying that. So maybe some good, good suggestions there. Uh, take them or leave them. But... Uh, I was thinking something more line, along the lines of, uh, here's John, right? John has spent his whole life being obedient to God. A prophet called. He's followed God's call to be a voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord to make way for Jesus' ministry. Sometimes I think we forget that John kept his Nazarite vow his entire life. He never cut his hair, never touched a dead body, never drank fermented drink. Um, you think of the other Nazarite vow in Scripture, Samson, who broke that at every turn. John kept it. He lived on locusts and wild honey out in the desert, preaching repentance and baptizing anyone who would come to him. He challenged the poor and the influential alike. He recognized that his ministry had to decrease as Jesus' ministry increased. And he said that because he was not worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. John was humble, obedient, and godly through and through. Jesus called him the greatest among men. So my question is, if John is at the end of the, his life. Where is the big party acknowledging his ministry accomplishments? 
Does he get a gold watch and a certificate and a retirement pension to kick back and enjoy his life? I mean, doesn't God recognize his obedience and his achievements and reward him? Do you seriously want the rest of us Christians who struggle to obey and follow in much easier ways than John had it? Do you want us to read this story and just get depressed or discouraged? All that work, all that struggle, and the end is kneeling for the executioner's blade in prison. I guess we have to check our motives for obeying God. Is it for the earthly rewards, the applause and acclaim of men, and the vision of kicking our feet up and enjoying life, relaxing after we've done enough? I don't know about you. Those are tempting thoughts for me. That sounds great. But we have to recognize that may not be our end, but push through because our reward is so much greater than that. Our true promise that nothing can separate us from is an eternity of joy, pleasure, meaningful worship, work, and rest in perfect relationship with every citizen of heaven and the most, most importantly with God himself. John was willing to forego comfort and reward in this life for the greater reward in heaven. And so is Wang Yi, the imprisoned Chinese pastor. I, I read sort of his uh, charge and the reasons that he speaks out against the government, but here's close a lot of the end of his declaration letter. He's counted the cost. My Savior Christ requires me to joyfully bear all costs for disobeying wicked laws. Separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all of these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life, and no one can raise me from the dead. Jesus is the Christ, son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my king and the king of the whole earth yesterday, today, and forever. I am his servant, and I am imprisoned because of this. I will resist in meekness those who resist God. And I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God's laws. The Lord's servant, Wang Yi. Within two years of John the Baptist's beheading, his cousin, the man that John had pointed to as the coming Christ, would be arrested and tried and found guilty of blasphemy and being a threat to the worldly kingdom. And just as Herod had sought to protect John from those who would kill him, so Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, tried to protect Jesus. John 19 records how Pilate declared to the crowd, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. The chief priests and the others cried out, crucify him. And then verse 12 in chapter 19 of John says, From then on, Pilate sought to release him, 
But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Pilate gave in and handed Jesus over to be crucified. Just like Herod, he found no reason to put his prisoner to death, but his hand was forced by stronger voices, and he gave in out of fear and wanting to save face before the power players in society. So Jesus, like John before him, was viciously killed for speaking the truth and calling people to repent of their wicked acts that separate them from a holy God. Both were caught up in political struggles. Both were innocent and deserved better. But that's where the similarity ends. As John declared at the beginning of Jesus' ministry before he baptized him, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's death didn't take anyone's sins away. Jesus' death did. It was a tragedy, of course, in one sense, just as John's death silenced a good man, but Jesus' death was also the ultimate victory, the plan of God from the foundation of the world to reconcile man to himself. Romans 5, 8 through 10 explains it. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Two men crushed by unjust actions. John's death foreshadowed and paralleled Jesus' death. Jesus' death is the key to our eternal life. Amen. Take a moment to pray and that God would help you apply this sermon in your life and convict you. I'll close this. Father God, thank you for the courage, conviction, boldness, honesty, integrity of John the Baptist. Thank you that you chose him from his mother's womb to be your spokesman, a voice crying out to prepare a way because the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, is coming to take away our sins. Thank you that John lived his life with conviction, spoke truth to power, and even though he was silenced, his message lived on. And in a greater way, Lord, help us to remember that Jesus gave his life 
as a ransom for many, as a ransom for us. Jesus unjustly killed, unjustly sentenced, imprisoned, crucified, tortured, and yet being the perfect Lamb of God, having never sinned, Jesus defeated death itself. So thank you that there's victory in that. Thank you, most of all, that death is not the end, that John was rewarded in heaven. And we will be too as we cling to you, as we are pardoned through Jesus' blood. We look forward to the great rewards, whether anyone notices what we do here on earth or not. You will welcome us in to paradise to eternity. Our lives now are a speck. We can look forward to rejoicing with you. So we thank you for that. Guide us and change us as we reflect on that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians 4, 12, 13, 23. Paul says, I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen.